Chapter 52 of Isaiah, we're looking at verses 13 through uh, and all of chapter 53. And I, I can tell you, I'm confident to tell you that this passion, this portion of Scripture is probably, I, I would say, is the most beautiful, glorious portrait of the gospel in all of the New Testament. All 37 books. This is the most beautiful and glorious portrait of the person and the work of Jesus in all the Old Testament. We've been calling this series the gospel according to Isaiah because in the midst of Israel's sin and and covenant-breaking rebellion, God's grace, His redemptive grace, has has been seen and has been expressed toward His rebellious people over and over again. Again, Grace has a name, let me tell you. The good news of the gospel that God rescues, redeems, and saves sinners has a name. His name is Jesus, and he is all over the book of Isaiah, in particular, the work of Christ today in today's text. Last week, I mentioned that over the past couple of uh, uh, chapters, God has been calling his children to awaken and to prepare themselves for their coming salvation. Isaiah calls them to prepare for their salvation, and now he calls them and he turns their attention to how they would be saved, who will be their savior. He's the suffering servant of the Lord. Remember, we said in chapters 1 through 39, uh, the main theme was Jesus as the fulfillment of the coming king, the redeemer. He's the true and better king, better than any king in all of Israel. He will sit on his father's throne, David, have an eternal kingdom, and he will reign and rule with perfect justice and righteousness. righteousness. The next chapters, uh, section uh, 40 through 55, Jesus is the true and better servant of the Lord. If you remember, we said that King Cyrus of Persia is a type or a foreshadow of the true servant, Messiah Jesus. He is the one, Jesus will release us and redeem us. He is truly anointed one who delivers us not from the captivity of Babylon that Israel finds themselves in. We've talked about that over and over again. But Jesus will release us from the captivity of sin, death, and hell. So although Cyrus is called the anointed in chapter 45, Jesus is the ultimate anointed one. Although Cyrus is called the servant of the Lord, Jesus is the ultimate servant of the Lord. This text this morning, chapter 52, verse 13, through all of 53, is the fourth and final servant song, they call it, or or the servant poem, okay? Um, We've learned so far, let's just recap, I think it's important to understand the the three other servant poems or the servant of the Lord texts that we've looked at already, um, and and as we run into this one, let's let's just be reminded of what the servant of the Lord has already been uh, portrayed to us, revealed to us. Through Isaiah. Isaiah talks about the servant of the Lord first in chapter 42, and how the Spirit of the Lord will be upon this servant of the Lord. And of course, we know it's Jesus. We saw that in his baptism. The servant of the Lord, the Spirit will dwell upon him. He will be gentle. He, for a bruised reed, it says, he will not break, and a faintly burning wick, he will not quench. The servant of the Lord will open the eyes of the blind. He will set prisoners free. The servant of the Lord will not grow faint or be discouraged as he, as he brings justice and righteousness to the nations, as in chapter 42. In chapter 49, the servant of the Lord is described as one who commands the entire earth to listen to him, to pay attention. That he was called before the foundation of the world. world. He is the, the prophet par excellence. 
He will glorify God as he restores the Israelites and brings light to all the nations. That's chapter 49. In chapter 50, we read how the servant's perfect obedience, even in the midst of suffering, we'll see that today, has led to God's vindication. His perfect obedience led to God's declaration of his righteousness, intrinsic righteousness. And now we'll see the atoning sacrifice and suffering of the servant of the Lord, the one who will redeem Israel. Again, Isaiah chapter 52, verses 13 through 53. Now, you know, and we've said this multiple times, that the verses and the chapter was added into Scripture. It wasn't with the original language, right? It was added in so we could find it together. Otherwise, we'll be pulling out books. We don't know where we are, right? Someone once said, and I agree, that this has got to be the very worst chapter breaks in all of Scripture. Chapter 52, verse 13, is the servant of the Lord, and it is all of chapter 53. And what I want to see in this text, there's actually five movements. I know it's usually three. There's five. You're welcome. There's five stanzas that break into, that easily are broken down so that we can look at them. Five stanzas. We'll see the exaltation of the servant. Verses 1, uh, for, excuse me, 52, 13 through 15. We'll see the rejection of the servant. That's verses of chapter 51 through 3. We'll see the substitution of the servant. Chapter 53, 4 through 6. The submission of the servant, verse 7 through 9. And then finally the satisfaction of the servant, uh, which is 10 through 11. And verse 12 we'll look at as we go into communion together. So, For the two of you that are taking notes, write it down quickly. No, actually, you'll see it here as well. Let me read to you the first section, the infallible, inspired, authoritative word from God to us. Chapter 52, verse 13 through 15, the word of God. Behold, my servant shall act wisely, He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they now understand. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Now, if you've been tracking with us, you'll notice the first verse, behold, my servant, is exactly the same phrase that began in chapter 42 of, of, of Isaiah, through the word of God, revealing to us the servant of the Lord. Chapter 42, verse 1, behold, my servant. And remember, the word behold, Isaiah is saying, sit up, pay attention, listen up. Right? The one I'm about to describe to you is of utmost importance. Here is the one, Isaiah is saying. Here is the one through whom Israel's covenant will be restored. Here is the one that, 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 uh, where the light will come to all the nations. This servant of mine shall act wisely. Not a very good interpretation of the original Greek, uh, Hebrew. Uh, it should really say, here is the one who will fulfill my purposes. He'll act wisely because he'll fulfill my purposes. He will accomplish, listen, all the mission that's before him. 
He will be successful. He will fulfill my purposes. In fact, you could see that in the next text, in the next part of this verse, that the reason that he will, uh, 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 that, that the work that he will do, that he will accomplish and be successful is why he'll be high and lifted up and be exalted. We see that. And what's interesting about verse 13, the second part of 13, is the term high and lifted up is only mentioned, I think, three or four times in all of the Hebrew Scriptures and only mentioned in Isaiah. That's it. One of the most important places that it was written is in Isaiah 6, if you remember. Isaiah 6, remember, it's the year that King Uzziah had died. And, and Isaiah is brought into the throne room of God. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, listen, high and lifted up. The train of his throne filled the temple, above him seraphims, crying out one to another, holy, holy is the Lord. You know the, you know the story, we went through that. The whole earth is full of his glory. Here we see the sermon high and lifted up. Every time the phrase is used in Isaiah, it speaks about God. Here, it's speaking about God, the servant of the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ and his deity is clearly described here in chapter 52, verse 13. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. God has a lot to say about man lifting himself up. That's why it only speaks of the Lord lifting himself up. In Isaiah chapter 2, verse 6 through 22, Isaiah speaks vehemently against the exaltation of man. He writes this, The haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. God alone is the one lifted up, as we see Jesus lifted up. This passage here in this servant song in, in these verses, begins where Christ ends his mission in glorious exaltation. Actually begins in verse 13 of the exaltation, actually ends in chapter 53, verse 12 of exaltation. Having triumphed in his mission to rescue and save sinners, he's exalted. Just like Isaiah, though. Isaiah, we've seen over and over, he loves contrasts. And we see, it goes from verse 13, high and lifted up, to verse 13, uh, uh, to verse 14, that his appearance will be marred. Look at the contrast, right? He's high and lifted up, and now we see suffering and humiliation that the suffering servant will endure. It will cause others to look at him and not ask whether or not, is he the servant of the Lord? They're going to ask, is he human? Is he human? He's marred beyond understanding and recognition. The beatings and the mocking and the torch of Christ was so horrific. It's hard to look at. Repulsed by the face of him who gave his life in humility. Appalled by those. Appalled as we look to the one who was, who has given his life for others horrified because of this figurement of his appearance. That's what Isaiah is talking about. But in contrast, or we should say in a paradox, something that appears to be contradiction, it was in his suffering, his severe suffering that permits his extreme power to cleanse. Look at the next verse. He's marred. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Isaiah is particularly using a Hebrew verb. 
pointing to what Israelite priests would do on the Day of Atonement. He would sprinkle the mercy seat, the place of atonement on the Ark of the Covenant, making Israel fit to come into the presence of God for another year. Even the priests themselves would sprinkle with water of purification. Those who had leprosy were cleansed, and the priests would, would sprinkle blood to show that the disease was washed away. They're now ready to rejoin the community and, and, and rejoin the worship of God. Family, that's what Jesus does with us moral lepers. Sinners who cannot enter into the presence of God. Unfit because of our sin. But Christ is both our priest and our sacrifice, right? He doesn't need to be cleansed. In fact, the sprinkling of his blood is clean enough and abundant enough to cleanse all the nations. He touches the unwashed. He touches the unclean, the outsiders, those who have sinned against God, and he makes us fit to come into the presence of God. He does this as a sufferer, whose suffering is not for his sake, but for our sake. This is the work that he will wisely perform. This is the work that he will be greatly exalted. I had the absolute honor and privilege to, to speak with a bunch of great guys down at the Albany Teen Challenge this week. and We looked at the gospel according to Mark, and how every time in Scripture when someone who was unclean usually had to go through rituals and cleansings and ceremonies to become clean, and everything they touched would then be defiled and unclean. But Jesus, the Holy One of Israel, touches that which is unclean and does not become unclean, but imparts cleansing. That's Jesus. The cleansing of the Lord for all nations, every tongue, every tribe. You know what? There's a call to everyone everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. That Jesus Christ dies as a, as a sacrifice and his blood cleanses us from our sins. In fact, in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, the heavens are, are singing a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you, Jesus, were slain. By your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. Hallelujah. Isaiah goes on to say that even the kings and the rulers will be in shock. Their mouths will be shut. They're, they're going to be rendered speechless. They never thought of removing guilt this way. How the servant of the Lord would judge our evil by, by bearing in himself in his own suffering. For they, look at verse 15, kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told, uh, they will see it. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Never thought of removing guilt this way as a sacrifice of the suffering servant. The kings will hear this, still understand this. The nations will see the truth. They'll be shocked at the depths of what God will do through the servant of the Lord. And in the end, many will be thankful and grateful. We see the exaltation and the suffering of the servant. It reminds me of Philippians 2, does it not? That although Jesus was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He's in the heaven in glory with his Father, but he emptied himself taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, that's incarnation. 
He humbled himself by being what? Obedient to the point of death, even on a cross. Death on a cross. Therefore, because of the work of Christ, God has highly exalted, highly exalted him and bestowed on him upon a name which is above every name. You see this death, and you see this resurrection, and you see this exaltation. The exaltation of the servant through suffering. Let's look at his rejection, chapter 53, verses 1 through 3. Again, the word of the Lord. Who has believed what has heard from us? What he has heard from us. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and he was rejected by man, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Rhetorical question, right? The Israelites now have come to know that the arm of the Lord, the delivering power of God, comes through the suffering servant. And Isaiah is marveling at the message that the Lord has revealed to him. God promised to do for his people what they could not do for themselves. She had no power or processes that she could restore herself to God. What's so interesting about this passage is we've been learning over the past few weeks about the arm of the Lord, how it brought deliverance to Israel, the time of the exodus from Egypt. It divided and, and overpowered the seas, chapter 51 of Isaiah. The same arm of the Lord of divine power can act destructive, uh, destructively to defeat many nations. It will destroy Babylon, chapter 48. In chapter 40 and chapter 52, the arm of the Lord, this powerful arm of deliverance, functions positively as he, as he reigns and rules the nations. But now, the arm of the Lord is being revealed. And its outcome is somewhat shocking. For it speaks about humility, brokenness, and suffering. Verse 2 speaks further about the humility of Christ. It begins by talking about his origins, his appearance. He, he is compared to a young plant and a root coming from dry, dry ground. Look at that. Instead of coming on the scene as this mighty you know, oak that, that is gloriously big and strong, it's a sprout, Hebrew suckling, unwanted, unnecessary sprout, uh, sprout coming maybe from a tree that's been cut down. It speaks of the lowly and unattractive character, small beginnings. We're like a little plant, unwarded, hardly could survive, doubtful it will survive. Such imagery, Isaiah is pointing to the servant of the Lord. We know the truth because we have the New Testament. This image of, of, of humiliation and weakness, we know that the servant of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, was not born in a palace, right? With all the luxuries of the, of the world of royalty. No, Jesus came from the Father's side, leaves the riches and glories of heaven, the intimate relationship with the Father to become what? A baby. <laughs> Coming down, leaving and coming, taking on flesh in this broken, jacked up, rebellious world. Born in a stable. Placed in a manger. Feeding trough for animals. He lived in Nazareth. Even, uh, even one of the apostles, like what good could come of Nazareth, right? His family was not rich by any means. Mary, an unwed teenager, 
Joseph the carpenter, his stepdad. Obscurity. In spite of all these lowly images, look what Isaiah says. The servant grew up before him. Mm, that's beautiful. Luke 1 says he had favor with God. The favor of God was upon him. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. Now, I don't know about you, but I grew up with halos around people's heads. Pictures, you ever see those, you know, this glow? Oh, he sees Jesus, look at the glow on his head. No, sorry to burst your bubble. He had no majesty, like the the magnificent looks of of earthly kings adorned in in their outfits. He had no appearance that we would desire him. His physical features, his outward appearance wasn't that very impressive. I don't think Isaiah is saying, you know what, handsome men are, are, and strong men and winsome men are, are sinful, but that's not the point, right? There's nothing in him that was seen that we would say, wow. Now that's someone we should follow. You know, the truth is we are, don't raise your hand, we're more superficial than we really want to say. We look on the surface of things, we judge the book by its cover, we look at appearances, and often we judge. That's what sin does, doesn't it? It renders us incapable of recognizing and appreciating the beauty of the Messiah. Why? We have an inadequate view of our sin and an overflated view of self. And we can't recognize that is what I need. I need forgiveness of sins. I'm a rebel at heart. If we truly understood what sin is, how rebellious we really are, we would see the need that we need more than what this world can offer, a deliverance of our own means. Something and someone outside of ourselves needs to rescue us. He was despised and he was rejected by men. They loved darkness more than light. John tells us. He's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one whom men hide their faces and we esteemed him not. He was despised. Despised means that despised means that we looked at Jesus and we thought, ah, eh, he's unworthy. He, he, he's unworthy of our attention. He's, he's worthless. He's not really helpful. So he's worthless, he's not helpful, and he is rejected. No surprise. Read the gospel accounts. Jesus was rejected. Even his close disciples and his family rejected him. His family thought he was crazy. He came to his own and his own what? Knew him not. Have you ever wondered, does God really understand? Does God really understand my loneliness? Does God really understand hardships and rejection The son of God, the servant of the Lord, had sleepless nights, I'm sure. He knows what it means to feel betrayed. He was acquainted with grief. Men hid their faces from him. Jesus knows what it's like to have people talk behind your back. He's been made fun of, laughed at, marginalized. He, He knew pain. He knew grief. And therefore, others would look at him and say, you know what? We esteem him not. 
Why go to that failure? How can he possibly help me? How can he deliver me? They're looking for a mighty king to, 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 to take down worldly powers, not a humble, suffering servant who would give his life for us. Dr. Oswald writes this. Thus the, the revelation of the arm of the Lord that will deliver the Lord's people is met with shock, astonishment, distaste, dismissal, and avoidance. Avoidance. Such a one as this can hardly be the one who can set us free from the most pervasive of all human bondages, sin and its consequences. To a world blinded by selfishness and power, he does not even merit a second thought, end quote. Why? We don't need a savior. I could do it myself. He's rejected. He is rejected. This next section Verse 4 through 6 is really the diamond of the work of Christ. Verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem them stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. Verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned, everyone, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Family, notice the personal uh, pronouns of we and our. He bore our griefs, our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted by God, God himself. Afflicted, the servant of the Lord. It doesn't just say that our grief and sorrows were merely put on Jesus. It says, it says he lifted them off of us. He took them on himself. He carried our sorrows. Taking away the load that we were bearing. He voluntarily, out of love, bore our grief. Carried our sorrows. The word grief there could mean diseases and afflictions and wounds. Sorrow is our pain and suffering Notice all those things are consequences of Genesis 3. Afflictions, wounds, sorrow, pain, suffering because of the broken world, sin and the brokenness of the world. In love, Jesus took it upon himself, the afflictions and suffering that we deserve to bear. And not only did he take them away, but he bore them in his own person so that he himself can deliver us from them. Notice, he does not suffer merely as a result of the sins of the people, but in the place of his people. He did not die because of anything he had done, but because of what we have done. He was not pierced for his transgressions. We were not pierced for our transgressions. He, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. Nailed to the cross, hands and feet to hang and die. As a sacrifice. He was crushed for our iniquities. Punishment was given to Jesus. And peace was given to us. That this peace was achieved with God. Because the just punishment. He required. Was put on the suffering servant. And by his wounds we are healed. You know Isaiah you could see. Obviously in this text. He's talking about a healed relationship. Between a holy God. And a guilty people. 
a God who there is no darkness in, who cannot embrace sin, who will never embrace sin, and a sinful people. He brought healing. That's the context. Let me just share with you of an interpretation of the name it and claim it masquerading as the gospel, and they're not the gospel. And they claim that physical healing is guaranteed because of the cross of Christ. They claim this verse. It's terrible. And really at its root, it's harmful and hurtful. Yes, the cross and the resurrection guarantees our healed, transformed, imperishable bodies in the future. But this passage about Jesus, our substitute, dying for our sins and our iniquities, of which is the reason for all of our sickness is because of sin. God did not, in Genesis 1 and 2, is paradise. There's no brokenness. Brokenness and diseases and, and, and all the things that came into the world was because of sin. And at the cross, Jesus dies for sin. That's the point of the text. And yes, at the cross, we guaranteed new and healed physical bodies. But to claim that now you should claim your healing because of the cross is, I mean, we could spend an hour on it, and I won't. We're all going to die. <laughs> Obviously, it's in eternity where we have our new healed bodies. You see, the essence of sin is us substituting ourselves for God, putting ourselves in his place. That, that, that's how all the brokenness of the world. Adam rebelled against God because he was prideful. He did not trust God. He wanted to be like God. We want to be in his place. And yet salvation is God substituting himself for us. God has done what we could not do. God has shifted the blame and the guilt to Jesus Christ as he died on the cross for guilty sinners. It was laid on him, the iniquity of us all. Listen, sin's going to be paid for. Sin will be dealt with. It can't be swept under the rug. You know that from your own experience, from, from life itself, right? If someone, you see, if you're parked on, on, on a road and someone hits you and, and, and destroys the front end of your car, look, listen, somebody's going to pay for it. Somebody, either you'll pay for it or they'll pay for it. But either way, someone has to pay the cost. And so it is with God when we sit against him. There's no way a holy God, a perfect and just God, can turn a blind eye to the damaging of our evil rebellion against him how was it done out of love god saw the damage we did god saw our rebellion god saw our sin and then god charged that infinite debt to that we owe to our substitute in the old testament sacrificial system if you're familiar with it the sacrificial animal carried the sins of the offerers away from them so that the offerer, the one who brings the animal, does not carry the guilt of their sins anymore. The animal does not merely die because, as the animal is being slaughtered, because the offerer sinned, not, not just because of that, but in the offerer's place. He died in the place of the sinner. The heart of the gospel, family, listen carefully. The heart of the gospel 
is substitution. Instead of crumbling in grief over our rejection, Jesus bears our grief. Instead of increasing our sorrows, he carries our sorrows. Instead of avenging our transgressions, he is pierced for them in our place. Instead of crushing us for our iniquities, he is crushed for them as our substitute. That's the gospel. The gospel and the cross is the self-substitution of God. God himself and Jesus Christ paying the debt for our sin. Died for our sins. Crushed. Pierced for our transgression. Crushed for our iniquities. Look at all the substitutionary language there. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. But notice, notice though, before we get to verse 6, let me just say this. (laughs) Verse 6, Isaiah says, listen, we're all in the same boat. All we like sheep, what? Have gone astray. All we have sheep have gone astray. Sheep are notorious, right? They got one thing in mind, eating. Sounds like me, but (laughs) unaware of what's going on. In fact, if you startle them, they're just going to run off somewhere. Prone to get lost. So it is with us, is it not? All of us want to be our own gods. We try to justify ourselves. We try to find meaning and purpose in life. We neglect God. It's not by accident God uses this analogy. Sheep want to go their own way. And when sheep want to go their own way, they're saying to the shepherd, I want to be my own shepherd. And when we want to go in our own way, we want to say to God, we want to be our own saviors. That's the point. But verse 6 ends with the iniquity of which we are guilty is not laid does not, the word really is strike, does not strike, does not strike us as we deserve. Rather, it falls on, strikes on Christ. For the Lord laid on him, Jesus our substitute, our iniquity, our guilt, our depravity upon him. He bore the punishment, the guilt of our sins required. Therefore, listen, he is the great shepherd who not only protects his flock, but dies in the place of his sheep. That's the substitutionary work of Jesus. I want you to see that this morning. I want you to see out of love, God charged that infinite debt to a substitute in your place. God made him Jesus who had no sin to be our sin so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. That's substitutionary language. The exaltation, rejection, substitution. Look at the submission. What a beautiful verse. Verse 7. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He opened his mouth like a lamb. He led to the slaughter like a sheep before his shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered he was cut off, the land of the living stricken for the transgressions of my people. And verse 9. They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Isaiah picks up this metaphor again of, of, of sheep. This time it's not the sheep wandering around, it's the sheep who's submitting. These verses speak of the servant of the Lord in his submissiveness, in his innocence, in, his, in, in the injustice of what was done to him. It begins by showing that Jesus is like a lamb led to the slaughter. A sheep silent before its shears. The imagery Isaiah is portraying, we pick up in the New Testament, don't we? Jesus' death was not due to being overpowered 
was somehow weak to the point that he had no say in what was being done to him. Okay? During Jesus' arrest, we know while he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter takes out the sword, cuts off the man's ear, and Jesus says, why? Put the sword back. If I want it, <laughs> do, you, do you not think I could appeal to my father who will send down 12 legions of angels? In other words, Peter, put it back. I'm voluntarily doing this. I could have the whole world smoke right now if I want. The cross was not a surrender to weakness, but an exercise of deliberate, sovereign control over the world. He was not overpowered. He chose not to fight back. He was not a helpless victim, but one who knowingly and willingly submitted to death. Isaiah's point is Jesus was silent, not helpless. And one of the beautiful truths that stand out as we consider the wonders of the gospel is that Christ was a willing, voluntary, and silent submission sacrifice. Knowing full well what was going to happen. He was oppressed, yes, treated poorly, he was afflicted, beaten, and flogged, but did not say a word. Did not say a word. And one can't think of this passage and not remember that before the judgment seat in Pilate's, uh, in the New Testament, before Pilate, the servant of the Lord, Peter says, let me tell you what, what Peter wrote, and you can, see the, you can see how Peter's writing up, Peter's watching what took place in that trial as Jesus kept his mouth quiet and submitted to this brutal execution. You can see what Peter's thinking during that time when he wrote his epistle. It says this about Jesus, 1 Peter 2. He, Jesus, committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. That comes from Isaiah. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him. That's the Father who judges justly. We've seen that all over Isaiah. He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in the body, in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin, live to righteousness, by his wounds, you've been healed. That's that right relationship. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter got it. That's Isaiah. Peter got it. That was Isaiah. The, sword, the lambs in the Old Testament sacrificial system again, did not understand, right? They didn't know what was going on. They just followed each other, right? Blindly following the flock to the knife, to their death. But our Lord Jesus Christ, the precious Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, set his face resolutely like a flint to go to Jerusalem. He knew what was before him. Not just the experience of, of being crucified, this violent, grotesque public humiliation and, and, and excruciating death on a cross, but the unleashing of the full wrath of God upon himself as he dies as a substitute in our place, paying the penalty for the sins that we deserve to pay. Montier, the commentary, says the fatal flaw, now listen to this quote, the fatal flaw in existing substitutionary procedures, Old Testament, was exposed and met in one stroke. Let me, let me finish. For the point where animal substitution failed was also the point where sin is most serious. 
Sin as willfulness is the thing that God cannot overlook. It's the heart, the very heart of our sinfulness that we sin because we want to. Because of this, no animal can do more than just picture substitution. Why? Only a person can substitute for a person. Only a consenting will can substitute for a rebellious will. In other words, the sheep didn't go voluntarily. They didn't even know what was going on. Jesus knew exactly what was going on. The rebellious, wicked, sinful people he had to die for. And he submitted And moved on. This next phrase here in the text. Verse 8. Really verse 8 and verse 9. Speak about the the wickedness of the trial. Right? If you notice that he was oppressed and judgment was taken away. In other words, he had a trial. And he was brought before the religious leaders. He was arrested. He was confined. He was judged. It was twisted judgment. It was false judgment. It was a, 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 they, they just broke every rule they could in order to find Jesus guilty and off to the cross he went. And now for his generation who considered that he was cut off for the land of the living. In other words, what he's saying is, where was everybody else? Where was everybody in Jesus' generation to say, hey man, hold up, this ain't right. He's done nothing wrong. I think it speaks to his aloneness. No one defended him. Zechariah tells us, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And I think that's exactly what he was cut off. Life itself, stricken for their transgressions. And look what it says. He didn't, he didn't act in violence. There was no violence in him. There was no violence. There was no deceit. Both his actions and his words, he's innocent. He is humbly and willingly and innocently going to the cross. And here, this last verse here, this last part of verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Interesting passage of scripture. I think what that means is the, the, the Roman authorities and those who crucified Jesus had every reason to take him down, either leave him on the cross and die like other wicked men, eaten by vultures or put him on the side of the road or possibly even throw him in the valley of Hinnom, a city dump. They've made his grave with the wicked. That's where he's going with all the other wicked people who are crucified. But look what it says with the rich man in his death. God said, no, I don't think so. Man had his plan. And God said, no, I don't think so. God overruled his plan. He's going to bury his son with honor. He promised his son in Psalm 16, he will not abandon his soul. He will not let the Holy One see corruption. And in God's providence, he moved on the Roman authorities to give this, his body, grant his body to a man we know, Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph took him down off the cross, a rich man, and put his body in the grave, his own grave. For the father said, no, you're not burying my son among the wicked. He would not allow his son's body to be burned or eaten by vultures. And so even though Christ, listen, would die with and for the wicked, God would not let him be buried with the wicked. I think that's what it's saying. The exaltation, the rejection, the substitution, the submission, and look at finally the satisfaction, verses 10 through 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. 
When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteousness. And he shall bear the iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him with portion with the many and shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because... He poured out his soul to death. It was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Notice the will of the Lord was to crush him. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. See that contrast. In other words, it is the will of the Lord that crushed the servant of the Lord. But it's the will of the Lord that will accomplish all the things that were set out for the servant to do in his suffering. He offered up the servant on the cross for the sins of mankind so that he can be a full and sufficient offering for them. Satisfying all the debts that was owed for his people. Debts of sin that left unpaid would stand forever between a holy God and a sinful people. His death was not in the hands of wicked men. Notice what it says. It was the will of the Lord. This doesn't absolve responsibility, but it tells us who's in control. They were doing what the Lord permitted to do. On the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up filled with the Spirit of God. Tells the Jewish people in in Acts chapter 2 that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And you crucified him and killed him by the hands of lawless men. Family, the wonder and the beauty and the glory and the infallible riches of the gospel. It was on the cross that Jesus Christ endured as he made an offering, gave his soul as an offering to God for the people's sin and guilt. And Isaiah, his prophetic eye, we see that Jesus, by his death, would accomplish, would, would, it would prosper in a way that is immaculate without the New Testament, imaginable to them. At the cross, Jesus achieved the ancient purpose of God with victorious loves as he provides satisfaction for his holiness. You know, when the Bible talks about guilt offering in Leviticus, what's interesting about that, you can read it in uh, in chapters 5 and 6, is the exactness between the sin and the remedy. In other words... It's actually called satisfaction offering. There has to be a connection between the offering and the sin in which the offering covers guilt. Okay, there has to be that. You ever wonder why Jesus had to be fully God and fully man? Because we are the ones who offended him and sinned against the holy God. And therefore the payment must come from man. He was also fully God because finite man cannot pay an infinite debt. It was only through the incarnation that the servant of the Lord was able to be free from sin, free from transgression, free from iniquity, and give himself as a vicarious or in our place, offering to others. If someone dies and they're sinners. In other words, if you were to die for your own sin, it can't cover other people's sins. He needed a perfect sacrifice. It would be be a, a, a travesty of justice 
to die for your own sin than try to die for someone else's sin. But Jesus, his perfect life, his vicarious suffering, dies in man's place. Okay, now, I want, I, don't lose me here. This is really important. Okay, we see the resurrection. I'll just go through this really quickly. We see out of the anguish of his soul. Actually, look at verse 10. He shall see his offspring. In other words, he will see the ones in which he saved. Because of the resurrection, verse 11, he will see and be satisfied. In other words, Jesus will look and see the the bounty in which he suffered and died for because he will what? Rise from the grave. We see the resurrection right here in Isaiah, 850, 900 years before Jesus' resurrection. But here's what I want us to see, and this is what we'll end on. Notice in verse 11, the second part. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, we say, well, who's the righteous one? Jesus. The righteous one, servant of the Lord Jesus, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Now listen, when we put our faith in Christ, it says here that we are accounted or counted as righteousness. It's forensic, it's declarative, before the holy bar of God, there's this glorious exchange that takes place. The suffering servant of the Lord bears the iniquity of his people and in turn they receive his righteousness. They're pronounced just, perfect righteousness, earned by Jesus, imputed or counted to our account. That's what he is saying in this passage. And that's what we see all over the New Testament. Not only does he substitute himself in our place, but Jesus' perfect life becomes our perfect life by faith. It's counted to us, imputed to us. The weight of our guilt goes to him. His righteousness comes to us. He dies as our substitute where we deserve to be. The wrath that we deserve, he dies as our substitute. And then in his perfect life, we have faith in him. His perfect life becomes our perfect life. The holy requirement is fulfilled in Jesus. Do you see that in the text? Do you see all that Jesus has done? The band can come up and we'll look at verse 12 and we'll go to communion. Therefore, therefore all the suffering of the servant has done, all that Christ has done as our substitute who died in our place, all the, uh, the oppression and the affliction and the, the, the sin that's been laid upon him, therefore... I will divide him portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. That language is about victory, deliverance, and all that Christ has done has been given to him. Why? Because he poured out his soul to death, numbered with the transgressions. We know he died between two thieves, bore the sin of many, makes intercession for the transgressions. Family, let me tell you something. This table here represents the pouring out of Jesus, his complete and utter self-giving for us as our sin bearer. He suffers on behalf of us and and he dies in the place of sinners and his intercessory work here, and I believe in all the New Testament, does not mean that Jesus in heaven interceding for us going to the Father and say, listen, I know Lou is a knucklehead. Please, just let him, just let him, Just forgive him one more time. If Jesus was up there doing that about my sin, you're all in trouble because he has too busy to worry about you. He's talking about me all the time. 
his intercessory prayer, listen, his sufficiency of the cross, his work of cleansing, his substitutionary, his, his bearing all our sin and guilt, he's going to the Father and he's opening up the portfolio of the cross. I paid for that sin. I died in his place. He's forgiven. You can't judge him for it. It would be double jeopardy. It would be a, 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 a injustice. And God is a God of justice. He says, listen, I died in this place. I took the iniquity. All that he deserved was laid on me as the substitutes. He's forgiven. That's what this table's about. This table's about the full work of Jesus satisfying the Father's holiness, dying in our place, his body broken. That's what the bread is. The cup is the blood that was shed for our sins. Do you trust in the substitute of Jesus? Are you relying upon him and him alone? Do you worship him as the one true God who has completely forgiven you of all your sins? I hope so. This table here, this communion table, uh, the band's going to play, we're going to come down these aisles here, is for you if you have followed Christ. You have believed in the substitutionary work of Christ. You are a Christ follower and a disciple of his. You've repented of sins and you believe on him. Then come, grab a piece of bread, grab a cup, sit back down, and then I'll come up and we'll lead everybody uh, through the taking of the bread and drinking of the cup. Maybe you're here today, you've never done it. Now's the day. You say, wow, God wrote that? 850 years before, and all of it has transpired to be true. I'm going to trust Christ today. Maybe today's the day you trust Christ. Maybe today's the day you recognize him as your substitute who died in your place. And you're welcome to come to the table. If you're not a Christian, just pray. We'd love to talk more to you about who Christ is and what he has done after the service. Just pray and, and, and sing, and we'll talk to you after the service. It's for those who are followers of Christ. Let's pray. Father, what a glorious truth revealed to us 850 years before even Christ came and then just lived out in the work, in the ministry, in the person of Christ. Help us to, help us to, be, help, help us to be strengthened in our faith as we see the work of your sovereignty and your goodness. Help us to trust you more today. Help us to lean on you and to believe on you today. Help us to worship our true Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And help us, Lord, please, to understand that salvation is about what you have done for us and in our place. We can't earn it. We can't do it. We just receive it by faith. So help us, Father, to repent well, to confess our sins well, and help us, Lord, to celebrate well the work of Jesus, we pray. In his name, amen.